everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Hellblazer Annual number one, The Bloody Saints. So it says The Bloody Saints in some sources, but in the book it says The Bloody Saint. So, The Bloody Saints! Correction, I guess the saint is alone. Which must be very sad for him. Yeah, well, he's an asshole. That's, <laughs> that's why. Okay. <laughs> we have a cover here. This is a very Dave McKeon-ish looking cover, but it's not actually by Dave McKeon. This is by Kent Williams, and it shows John Constantine in the form of an armored knight in front of a castle, dodging three flying swords. How do you know that that's John Constantine in the form of a knight and not just a knight? Well, he's blonde. Good enough for me. <laughs> Moving on. This issue was written by Jamie Delano with art by Brian Talbot. So shall we jump right in? Well, do we have any recapping we need to do first? I guess we should probably mention that in 1978, John Constantine tried to save a little girl and accidentally sent her to hell. Yeah, he went into it with the best of intentions. Except not really. <laughs> he kind of wanted to show off. Yeah, he, he had been looking for an excuse to summon a demon, and summon a demon he did, and wouldn't you know it, it didn't accomplish the task that he had in mind for it. Right. Unreliable things. So he ended up spending several years in Ravenscar Secure Facility for the Dangerously Deranged. Now, do we want to talk a little bit about this different artist, Mr. Brian Talbot? Sure. Well, his basic style isn't a hell of a lot different than the regular style that we've seen in the book so far. I think it's worth noting that he's going to shift substantially in the way he draws the book when we get into the flashback a few pages in. Yeah, he's got the same sort of grittiness that we're used to seeing in this book, although he draws a little bit more realistically compared to Richard Pierce Rayner, mm -hmm. who did the last couple of issues. Mm-hmm. His John Constantine, I think, looks a lot more physically imposing than what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Even, like, Constantine, when he appeared in the pages of Sandman and was being drawn by... Was it Sam Keith? In that he, issue, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was Sam Keith. Keith when he showed up. Even that, he, he Constantine was drawn sort of more cool-looking and less, like... I'm fucking wreck. <laughs> but he was cool looking in a sort of like, like you'd expect him to be a, a nimble trickster sort of way. Okay. Whereas, yeah. whereas this is like a cool looking John who actually looks physically tough. So when he doesn't have his trench coat and his blue suit and his working class roots are showing a bit more? Well, could be. Could be that. Also, this is a younger Constantine than we've been seeing. As we will soon find out. Well, as we will immediately find out, because in page one, they are already talking about the Falklands War. Yeah, so John is watching the task force be dispatched from the United Kingdom to enter the Falklands War, which gives this incident a specific date. This occurred on April 5th, 1982. And at this point in the comic book, that makes this a flashback of five or six years, right? Yeah, that's right. So John's watching the TV, and he's pretty pissed about what he's seeing. 
Yeah, and so he decides to give his TV a bit of a kicking. <laughs> and with a crumph, he crushes the screen with his foot. Yeah, now I was curious why Brits at the time might think ill of the war. So I looked into it a little bit. Well, I mean, it's a war. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and apparently they had not had an overseas military action in 30 years, so it ended a long period of peace. In addition to which, the British presence in Argentina, which was their opponent in the Falklands War, was kind of a relic of empire. Their right to it was no longer self-evident. But a big reason might be that the war ended up reinvigorating Thatcher's flagging reign. It was basically her first real accomplishment in office, and I think some people, especially people with John's political leanings, might see it as intended for that purpose. I wonder how many people with John's political leanings just kicked a big hole in their TV sets. <laughs> He's got a war of his own. He has to fight. Got a hot temper. Gets that TV set. <laughs> I thought you meant sort of a mental... Nope. <laughs> just the one, just one man against his TV set. You know the detective Sipowitz shot his TV set once in an episode of NYPD Blue? What was he upset about? Politicians, I think. Okay. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So, John takes some pills with alcohol, pills which are conveniently labeled do not take with alcohol, and pulls out his raggedy old journal and starts to write down some noir as shit narration. Yeah, and he talks about how he's not cured. Here we find out that he's recently released from Raven Scar. This is his fourth release in as many years, and he hasn't been able to stay out for more than six months. And then the rest of the issue is going to be a flashback within this flashback. Yeah, and he says they should make me a bloody saint, which leads us to the title, The Bloody Saint. But yeah. it's a different it's a different kind of bloody. Like he's using bloody the expletive. Yeah, that's right. Now, Ravenscar is seated on a picturesque cliff, and apparently every time he gets released, he walks up to that cliff and considers throwing himself off. That's just not a good place to put a mental hospital. It's really not. The liability issues <laughs> with that decision. <laughs> yeah, and, and we already know that the reason for his being in and out of the mental hospital is the traumatic Newcastle incident, which was covered in the main book. That's right, back in Hellblazer number 11. So John doesn't throw himself off the cliff, and instead he goes to a place that he doesn't particularly enjoy. Only a lunatic would escape one prison of the mind and then spurn liberty to burrow again in this contorted maze, this sweaty dungeon of the soul, London. Yeah. Is it just sort of being back among the temptations of city life that he's concerned about? I think that John is in general pretty cynical about human civilization as a concept. <laughs> he thinks that most people are crap and when they get together they can be crap bigger. Well, fair enough, but it's not as if we see him living in rustic rural settings very often. That's true. London is where he chooses to be. But then he's crap too. Don't you try to plug your other podcast on my show. <laughs> <laughs> and it's at this point that Constantine runs into a doofus. <laughs> yeah, so this is a guy named Martin Peters but John knows him by the name Destructo Vermin Gobsmack from the band The Hopeless Heroines. That's heroines like the drug, not like... Yeah, that's right. Like female protagonists. And Martin, it seems, has gone corporate in the intervening years. 
He tells John that he's in management, but right now he's out on the street hawking pro-war t-shirts, striking while the iron is hot, because he knows the war isn't going to last very long. Yeah, and he has heard about Constantine's visits to the mental hospital and says... He, he alludes to it using the phrase, the old rest cure. Mm-hmm. I want to point out here that Martin uses the word argies to refer to the Argentinians. Oh, yeah, that... That struck me as pretty non-politically correct. It's not politically correct, and in the context of the time, it would definitely mark him as pro-war. There was something of a split among the British media, where those who were anti-war tended to say the Argentinian forces, while more jingoistic outlets used argies. Wow. So, Martin at first comes off as a rich yuppie, but then Constantine asks him, if you're doing so well in the music biz, why are you flogging t-shirts on the street? Martin says, why pay a middleman? You have to strike while the iron's hot these days. The Argies only invaded a couple of days ago. Once our boys get there, it'll all be over in a week. It does look like he has a car phone, though. I still basically read him as an obnoxious yuppie. (laughs) He's got a line here later in the scene about, well, his coke is in, so he has to go pick it up. (laughs) Yeah, okay, he's pretty obnoxious. And John asks him here, what happened to the good old anarchic revolution, then? Thatcher and Reagan hijacked it and turned it into a libertarian free-for-all. Great, eh? So, Martin recalls that John's band, Mucus Membrane, many of the members of which were also members of the Newcastle crew that tried to fight that demon in Newcastle. Right. Uh, They had made a music video for their song, Venus of the Hard Cell, and Martin offers to put out the video and make John some money. Yeah, but John doesn't want to sell out. So he tells Martin he'll think about it and walks away. And Martin gives him a card anyway. Wise up, John. This is 1982. It's a steamroller. Get on board or it'll flatten you. So John wanders on, having had a drink with Martin and having another one from his hip flask. And he ends up basically collapsing in front of this estate when he is happened upon by a striking woman. This character's not in the book for very long, but I really like the way she's drawn. She's not, you know, supermodel beautiful the way that you see a lot of women in comics, but she's definitely immediately visually arresting. Yeah, she has a sort of masculine manner about her while at the same time being beautiful and, you know, obviously very self-possessed and powerful. Yeah, and she's got the sort of wild hair that you often saw on Wonder Woman in this era. Yeah, actually, she could be Wonder Woman. She's probably not Wonder Woman. Well, I know, but I'm just saying... <laughs> I'm just saying, you slap, a, you slap a text box that says Wonder Woman in front of her, and you'd believe it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you would. Now, she's wearing a pair of earrings here, a snake on one side and a crescent moon on the other, which are a couple of visual motifs we're going to see throughout the issue. And as she saves Constantine from being run off by the temple guards, she starts to tell him a little bit of history of London that he hadn't known. Did you know Westminster Abbey is really a shrine to Apollo, a poxy temple for an upstart sun king deified by demagoguery? No, but it figures. So, John says he just wants to tear it all down. Oh, you can never do it by force, she assures him. If you play their game, they'll crush you. She tried. Bodicea. Right, she reminds him of the Celtic warrior queen who burned London to the ground in 60 AD, but eventually she was defeated, drank poison, and London was rebuilt. 
those loyal to the goddess now fight back in more secret ways. Then she asks, do you have somewhere I can visit you? He has, certainly has a lot of magnetism if a woman who picked him up passed out <laughs> drunk on a sidewalk <laughs> wants to take him back to his place. I don't know what he's doing, but it is effective. Yeah. I think it's probably fair to say that she is picking him up here. Fair enough. So they go back to John's place and make love. He describes her as cold. Yeah, and he talks about how white she is. Red lips, white hips, night ships rocking on a whispering sea. And it's possible that this entire sexual encounter is imaginary. Certainly by the morning she's gone. But he says that she left him a legacy. A silver snake of thin resolve wriggling in my fluttering veins. The snake, creature of deception, or so they say. A useful ally against this sunlit, stark-shadowed world of simple do-or-die. Yeah, which I interpreted as him saying that the self-deception of the possibly imaginary sexual encounter <laughs> uh, carries hope with it. Perhaps. It struck me that he might be comparing himself to the snake, as he certainly goes on to be a creature of deception. Fair this enough. Is, this is sort of a sub-origin story for Constantine, because this is the first time that he's gotten back on his feet after his first failure. This is where he learns to become the sorcerer that he is. So this might be the moment sort of where he chooses deception and sneakiness as his tools of the trade. Could be. In any case, we next cut to a blood-red sea with a ship passing through the roaring waves. I assumed this to be the British Naval Task Force. Oh, that would make sense. And audible over this scene is what certainly seemed to me to be the sound of John and the woman making love. And in the final panel, it cuts to the mouth of a bloody-faced wild boar. Yeah, a giant boar with engraved silver tusks that seems to be bursting out of the red water. Ah, oh, iron ships on a bloody sea. The sow cleaves me. The groans that we heard in the earlier page, could also have been the fitful sleep of Lord Abbott here. Okay, that makes sense. I kind of assumed that that woman was doing some kind of magic ritual to summon this giant boar, but that works too. So, yeah, we are suddenly in another flashback. What are we, three layers now? Yes, so. And this is an aging abbot of the Catholic Church living in this castle on this promontory with his two slaves and... They don't say it here, I think, but they will mention that this place is, in fact, Ravenscar. Yes, indeed. And it kind of sounds like they just arrived. They say, your slaves are here. But he says, no, leave me. Be gone. This ancient passion will not be stilled by your raw ministrations. And at the same time, we see that he has a robot arm. Yeah! <laughs> now... The slaves have tried to calm him down from his uh, frightening dreams. Not clear if they're trying to do that by having sex with him. It's gross. Yeah, they definitely seem to be naked and much younger than he is. Yeah, I want to point out here that the brother mentions, We are slaves, or do you wish our blood to tint the mortar of the bastard's next church? Are you sure that's a brother? I thought it was just a short-haired girl. No, she says, help me, brother. Oh, there it is. Anyway, so they run away, and two Christian monks go up to see what the problem is with this dude. 
Yeah, now, this dude is vomiting blood, but he dismisses their concern, saying, I have battled monsters in my sleep and risen victorious. This red juice, this shite is pressed from them. Surely, Lord Abbot, you are a mighty warrior for God. They go on to say that he will surely be named a saint, so he kicks one of them down a flight of stairs, saying that the priest must want him dead. For must not a man become martyr before God names him saint? So, we already see that Lord Abbot is pretty evil. <laughs> he is a dick. So, having run off the monks, he begins to dramatically address someone who he calls Lady, saying that he has lived too long. Yeah, now as he speaks, he's got a cross atop a dragon, sort of a slain dragon symbol, except he turns it upside down so the dragon is ascendant. And this reveals the way to his secret magic basement. Well, thank God we at least got a good secret passage out of this story. <laughs> that was grumpy old fucker. There's some nice dialogue on this page, too, as he's mocking Thor in the form of the storm that's going on for raging when the one god is clearly winning. He repeats a series of riddles, each one asking, Who am I? And in the end, he addresses the severed head of Merlin. Fuck yeah. And says... Has even great Merlin forgotten my name? And Merlin vomits up a mess of worms and replies, I'm riddled, but by this tumult of worms, not by your impoverished poetry. This is truly the ending time, when magic song is so shriveled that a brash boast may be called a riddle. Our evil dude says, Shut up, just say my name. And then he threatens Merlin some, and eventually Merlin does say his name. That name is Constantine. Right! This is the barbarian king Constantine, and he asks Merlin to recite the story of his life. He promises if the tale is good, he will let Merlin die. Which is a convenient thing to do when you're just a head on a stick. Mm-hmm. And so Merlin starts another flashback within the flashback. We're four in now. He's recalling the fall of Arthur, and we open on an image here of Merlin starting into the forest, oblivious of a snake overhead. When he is called back by Arthur, who sits at the round table, surrounded by desolation, the remnants of a great feast. Yeah, and this feast table looks really gross. Like, it's just covered in these skeletons of things they have eaten, and, and red wine or juice or blood, and it just, it, honestly, it looks like he's just been feasting on human beings. And a couple of dogs are approaching for scraps. And Merlin also describes here the conception of Mordred, or as they say in this issue, Medrod, as serpent stealth. So that's, that motif comes back yet again. Now, Arthur has just had a very distressing dream, and on the next couple of pages he describes it to Merlin. Yep, this is a two-page spread here, in which Arthur pursues a shape-shifting into the forest. It starts as a doe and then becomes a horse and then becomes a maiden. We see here a woman who looks a lot like the one that Constantine slept with. He follows her into a hovel, but when he gets inside he finds an old crone. And he draws his sword to slay her, but then she turns into the boar with the silver tusks. With a sweep of tusks like silver sickle moons, she unmanned me opened me and gobbled my innards while I looked on in gratitude. 
What does this mean, wise Merlin? King Constantine answers the question. Failure is what it meant. It meant that the true magic whose roots your sorcerer's vanity tried to choke and deceive you. It meant the women had brought the Golden Kingdom down. The Fae Morgana, Arthur's half-sister, had avenged the rape connived with your art by which Uther Pendragon had sired him on the fairy grain, her mother. So yeah, it seems that Arthur has been seduced by Morgana. Right, now at this point Merlin knows Camelot is doomed, so he just wanders off and disappears. We see very quickly in a couple of panels that Medrod has his uprising, and he and Arthur kill each other. Meanwhile, he's seeking out Constantine. Right, and as he does, we see the moon rise, and he describes the hissing serpents of the wind. Now there's a pause in the tale as Merlin and Constantine argue. Here, Merlin reveals that despite Constantine's contempt for monotheism, he rules a Christian land. Constantine doesn't take it very well, and threatens to set Merlin on fire. And then he does. Yeah, there's a panel break here where he might not set Merlin on fire, but then he just does. He doesn't really stop to think about it for a very long time. I have a mind to light this wick and make you a lantern for my last hours in this world. Ha ha! I have a mind, and so I will! Whoosh! Right. <laughs> Man, what a dick. Yeah, he's not a nice man. So, using Merlin's head as a light, Constantine passes through a dragonmouth door and through a waterfall and enters a sacred chamber with a great big mother statue carved in relief in one wall. Its face is an open window into the sky looking on the full moon. I like how he makes a pun here about Merlin's smoldering intellect. <laughs> right. Now he makes entreaties here to a pagan goddess that he calls the dragon or the mother before telling Merlin to carry on with the tale. Yeah, there's a sort of running theme about the pagan older gods being female and the one god of Christianity being male. Right, and along similar lines, violence and conquest seem to be the male way to victory and subtlety and deception the female way. Yeah. Although John ends up embracing the female way, so to speak, so. As does his forebearer, King Constantine. Yeah. I would note here that the symbol of his religion that we see him with at some parts of this story, as well as the passage that he takes into this sacred room, both look sort of vaginal. This is true. He's wearing a, a silver amulet in the shape of the two tusks of the boar pressed together. So, back in the flashback, Merlin makes Constantine king, and the young, handsome King Constantine looks exactly like John. Yeah, and everywhere he goes, people are in awe of him. Now, Constantine defeats the Northmen and the Anglish in wars, but he has problems with the Christian priests. One of them calls his magic serpent arts, so Constantine cuts his head off. But, the narration tells us, the one god has many heads, and it thrives from its own spilled blood. It takes many battles to learn that the scabbard is mightier than the sword, and warlike Constantine, he fought them every one. This is the first time that we get the mention of Constantine as a hero, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean hero like good guy. Hero like a great figure? Yeah, it, it's it's almost like he has no will of his own. He He is a hero, so he's bound to go do heroic things, like running around and fighting in as many battles as he can. Yeah, and there's 
a theme here that he's bound into a cycle that heroes or kings have to follow. You should not go, my lord, says Merlin. Your place is here in Ravenscar. The king must tend the land. Having built his Camelot, King Constantine embarks on a journey into mystery, seeking the knowledge to surpass even Merlin. Is he making fun of Thor again? <laughs> yeah, and on his trip, he meets with Pictish pirates who cut off his arm. They kill his crew, cut off his arm, and he summons a storm, uh, the tides being controlled by the moon, that's something he's able to do, and escapes from them. I don't think a storm, like, the waves that come from a storm are not the same as tides, but for magic logic, I guess we'll take it. <laughs> so the tide carries him into the she realm, one of the few remaining, out of Apollo's reach, we are told. And they heal him, and they give him a mechanical arm, and the fairy queen Nimue becomes his lover. She was the most beautiful, and he thought not to go to abandon his crown and stay in the folds of her star-shot gown, but it would not be so, for he was a hero. After a year with the she, he leaves, taking his son with him, and they return to Camelot. Or Ravenscar. Yeah. And in a circle of Stonehenge-like constructions, he sacrifices his son for the first time to prolong his own life. Right, so Constantine knows that the cycle of kingship requires him to have a son and give up his throne to that son. And there's sort of the cycle of Camelot here as well that's invoked, where the son has to rise up and destroy the father. Either way, Constantine defers the cycle by sacrificing his son for a long life and a few more years of kingship. Yeah, and already Merlin mocks this decision, saying that he's giving vain shelter to the beasts of anachronism. And he says that their kingdom will never have peace while you hold pastime against the changing minds of men. The magic of his gods are losing against the growing power of Christianity. Merlin tries to intimidate Constantine into doing the right thing here by snorting scary green smoke from his nose. He says the bull is receding, the fish is ascendant. And then Constantine grabs him by his nose smoke and brandishes his own holy symbol at Merlin, which is the pair of silver horns. The uh, smoke is absorbed into the silver horns, and Constantine has stolen Merlin's power. I, Constantine, I, blazing king, I dare to free the dragon from her lair. And then Constantine incinerates Merlin's body, leaving only the head. Sing on, then, you bastard know-it-all. That's Constantine in the present, addressing the now burned-up, shriveled head of Merlin. Merlin says, For all his raging hero's ire, great Constantine was troubled, and troubled he yet nineteen years in dark-browed raven scar, while round the borders of his land the priestly foment bubbled. And in his time he took a new wife, a prancing mare of the sea, who left him a foal, then ran from the show, glorious, silver, and free. So while his son grows, Constantine studies the magic arts of many lands. He kills a lot of Christian priests and feeds them to pigs, which are the symbol of his goddess. And here we get the goddess name for the first and possibly only time in the issue, Keridwin. It says he tended the land in the proper way, food grew in its season. Yet he tended the stones on the proper day, for the dragon ruled his reason. So even as he is appearing a good king by day, at night he is still making sacrifices 
at these Stonehenge-like altars. Now, I did a little research on Caradwen. She is a sorceress or goddess in Welsh legends. Her name literally means crooked woman. She is said to have the cauldron of poetic inspiration, and modern pagans consider her the goddess of rebirth, inspiration, and transformation. So despite his cunning and his knowledge of magic and his powers as a hero, the many military victories that he's won, he cannot defeat all of his enemies. Nineteen years on, it's again time for the king to die, but instead Constantine brings his son to the mother's hovel. Its door is a giant copy of the paired horn symbol. While his son waits outside, Constantine goes in to consult the mother. You are strong and vigorous, lord. You wield power and store all the knowledge in the world, but there is one craft you have not learned, the craft of submission. Teach it to me. And then they have gross sex, and then he goes outside and sends in his son. And a pair of evil-looking red eyes glower from the doorway. That's a pretty cool panel. As the son turns back, giving his father one last look before he goes in. So, back at Ravenscar, Constantine picks out one of many captive Christian priests. This is Petrarch, who will become known as Saint Petrarch, died in 564 AD. Yeah, he has a whole bunch of Christian monks in chains. He orders most of them killed and basically takes one to argue with. I feel a need for conversation. Come, let's gnaw the bones of your philosophy. So he has this conversation with Petrarch, taunting him that he, Constantine, has many gods, all, all with more wisdom than the Bible. Petrarch calls Constantine a heathen, so Constantine makes him vomit up snakes. That's a great way to win an argument. <laughs> if you can make the other person vomit snakes, it is internationally recognized that you have won. If you have it, you should use it. But Constantine doesn't end up winning the argument because he says the Christian church is wrong because it interposes itself between people and the magic of the land. But he's decided to be a Christian king, and he converts. Because I cannot stand against that which must prevail, because all men crave power and all men fear woman, and I am a man like you who would abuse her. So over the next couple of pages, Constantine makes his kingdom a Christian kingdom, but he works wood from holy trees and stones from pagan henges into his churches, and he makes them order from the blood of human sacrifices and builds the churches on pagan holy places. It's a totally fake conversion. He hides the pagan faith within the Christian faith, so it will never truly disappear. It will always secretly be ascendant. And no priest of that empire understood, even down through the centuries to come, that their one god had not been conquered, but had been seduced. And though their power may last 10,000 years, still they must fail to be complete, while writhes the dragon beneath their feet. Merlin finishes his tale, and as promised, King Constantine kills him in payment. Let it not be said that I was a cruel or a deceitful man. Come then, lady. I'm ready. Take me home. And a giant dragon bursts up from under the castle to bring him directly to the mother. And as they watch him being carried away by this dragon... The monks, ever misinterpreting his true intentions, say that he's vanquishing the dragon, protecting us, his flock. Truly, the father abbot was a fearsome warrior, come late to the service of our father. But by this act, all men shall know him a true martyr to the faith, and his name shall be recorded throughout time in churches founded on this raven scar as Holy Constantine, 
a fierce and bloody saint. So your read on this page is that the priests immediately believe that he's vanquishing the dragon. Yeah. I read it as kind of kind of willful ignorance in the face of it. Like, the dragon is receding in the background, and they're, oh, yeah, he's winning. He's winning that fight. <laughs> Isn't he the best? <laughs> Constantine arrives at the mother's hovel, and he says, Mother, I have come. All the magic has been done. And he looks directly into the camera as he adds, I did it. Constantine. Me. The king that ever was, and now will ever be. And the boar emerges and takes him into its jaws with a splash of blood. Back in the present, John is searching Chaz's storage unit for the tape, having decided that a little bit of compromise won't kill him. Well, yeah, he says he at least has to watch it before he can make up his mind. But looking through this relic of his old life makes him feel old. I've turned it into a symbol, some kind of holy grail of self-respect which will keep me out of Ravenscar. And he thinks to himself that the writing was on the wall in his callous youth. Newcastle just underlined it. I need to find that tape. I need to let that money-hungry bastard gobsmack put it in front of the world. Not for fame or fortune, not because it's great art or iconoclastic, but because it's my art. I did it. I said it. And I have a right to make myself heard. So John's story in the present connects thematically with the story of King Constantine in the past. It's all about identity, about finding a way to declare one's existence before dying. And just then, Chaz surprises John with a pig. Well, before the pig comes up to surprise him, he's reading a book that says The Early Church in the Dark Ages. Hmm, okay. Which sort of connects things back as well. Yeah. So Chaz scares the piss out of John, and then uh, Chaz is able to find the tape pretty much instantly. What's this then, a bar of chocolate? And so Chaz asks John, are you going to let old Gobsmack put this out and make mucus membrane posthumous heroes of the revolution that never was? Christ, Chaz, that was a long sentence for you. Been reading Rolling Stone, have we? I might do, though. Gotta watch it again before I decide. And so he and Chaz go off to watch the tape together. Let's go to your gaff and run this through the VCR. Unless your missus is in. I'm not bearding that dragon in a lair. And that brings us to the second story in this annual, Venus of the Hard Cell, written and with art by Dean Motter. Right, so this is the mucous membrane video, and it's fine. Yeah, not a lot to say here. Should we go through it? There's not much to recap, and I certainly don't want to read the whole song. Fair enough. You just basically get some cultural critique, some war and political imagery, and it ends with a guy putting a, a heroin needle into an eyeball, uh, which is also a bullseye. The lyrics end, I wonder why we don't cry for the Venus of the hard cell. Don't sigh for the Venus of the hard cell. Don't lie for the Venus of the hard cell. Don't die for the Venus of the hard cell. Free her and live. There's also a little reference at one point in the lyrics to Apollo, which is a double meaning of the, uh, the space flight and the Ancient god, I think. Oh, the sun god that secretly runs London. Got it. Exactly. Well, so what do you think of that issue? I didn't really care for it much. For one thing, old King Constantine is a pretty unpleasant character to spend, what, 40 pages with? This is very true. And also, there's just a, a, lot, of, a lot of telling instead of showing. I think that's fair. I mean, our Constantine stories usually take place in the present and have immediate stakes. 
this is four flashbacks in one. So Right, exactly. And the style of it is almost more like an illustrated tale, because most of the important stuff is being narrated by Merlin, mm -hmm. rather than actually allowing us to see any scenes play out. It's almost entirely what you might call montage. Yeah, so even the, the true story of the issue, which is the life of King Constantine, it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah, and there are some interesting revelations in there. I don't know what impact they have on the cosmology of the Constantine universe. Right, so he's suborned Christian worship, so it's, it's really secretly pagan worship, and... If that's something that's of interest to you, there's certainly research you can do that will that will point to uh, elements of pre-existing faiths that got rolled into Christianity. Right. As for the significance of it as a Constantine story, I think maybe the best we can come away with is that Constantine had an ancestor who was a lot like him. Well, yeah, there's also this this strong, like, female magic versus male Christianity kind of theme to it, yeah. which frankly just doesn't really seem to recur. Uh, it's not a major theme in the Hellblazer series. Yeah, exactly. Instead, the duology that we're always seeing in Hellblazer is heaven versus hell, both of which tend to have male incarnations. Yeah, and, and there's, a very, there's a very man's man kind of vibe to the series overall. John is a guy, his opponents are mostly guys. He's very aggressively masculine in his interests and pursuits. He smokes, he drinks, he sleeps around a lot. It's all kind of boys' adventure tales. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I mean, so this was the 80s. Comic books were seen as being a male interest. Yeah. Uh, even, even more than they are now, back then. And Vertigo, certainly as an imprint, was not trying to win over new readers. It was mm -hmm. more, this was more like, these are comic books for hardcore adult comic book fans. Yeah. You know, people who are, people who are already in the comics fandom looking for, like, a comic book man's <laughs> comic book, if you will. The irony of it, though, is that I think Vertigo Comics attracted more female readers than a lot of the mainstream stuff. Um, especially with the success of Sandman. Mm. And all of it was edited by Karen Berger. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah, I get all that. I guess I'm just saying that I don't necessarily buy the idea, as suggested in this annual, that Constantine has embraced sort of the female tradition of, of deception and cleverness in his magic. Yeah, well, the idea that, like, men are honest and women are deceitful uh -oh. <laughs> is, is pretty shitty <laughs> yeah. to begin with. And especially, like, I don't know, the deceitful, completely asshole-ish character in this story is a man. Yeah, that's true. And you look back at Constantine's relationship with Zed, for example. Again, the, uh, the guy is the asshole and the deceiver there. Yeah. I thought that the comic was giving us a cool female character in the, you know, strong and interesting and intelligent woman who picks John up when he's fallen on the sidewalk, you know, and there's some cool female strength in the, the gods that the old King Constantine is serving, but unfortunately it ends up coming around to this theme of, like, 
might and truth as male and trickery and deceit as female. Yeah, and you know, I thought she was really cool when she first appeared, and then her role in the story ends up being to sleep with John and give him a new lease on life. Right, yeah, to give him hope. He was he was feeling depressed <laughs> and unsure of his future and on shaky ground mental health wise. Yeah. Until this mysterious woman savior came along and gave him wish fulfilling sex. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree that the way that, like, you know, he's a drunken mess. He's laying there on the sidewalk. He's going to smell terrible. <laughs> and this woman comes along and still wants to sleep with him and still finds him charming somehow. That's, like, total wish fulfillment fantasy. Yeah. And has has no semblance of reality in it. Yeah, and her role in the story turns out to be to get the male hero from, from one psychological point to another and then disappear. On the other hand, I am glad that we fairly consistently see that Constantine, when he's interested in women, he's interested in women who are strong and intelligent mm -hmm. and independent. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I do want to say about this issue, I like the art. I think it does a good job of being grounded while showing us some cool stuff. And I gotta say this issue is more densely written and more densely planned with its imagery than most of the issues we see. Yeah, I liked the art as well. I found it to be sort of delightfully gross. <laughs> you know, every couple of pages, somebody's throwing up some snakes <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. you know, or getting their head set on fire or something. And it's just like one like gruesome thing after another. And this is a long book. This was a, a 50 or so page story. And I, at some points, I was just turning pages, like, wondering what the next, like, <laughs> bizarre, disgusting thing that was going to happen would be. <laughs> yeah. And I want to give credit to Delano as well, that even if the story basically amounts to wouldn't it be cool if, he peppered it with a lot of recurring themes and imagery. It struck me as a very, a very dense story, if not a very complex one. Yeah. I, I think that's accurate. I just wish, like, you know, this is an annual. Annuals are a good place for side stories that don't necessarily have to have a huge impact on the main plot. It would have been nice if he had used it to tell an unrelated Constantine story, mm -hmm. but instead it's sort of we're back to Newcastle, you know? It's, yeah. He's just adding another shade, another layer to Newcastle and the fallout that followed it. You know, first we had a lot of buildup to finding out what Newcastle was, and now we've had, you know, last week we covered Constantine having a dream. This week we cover Constantine having a flashback. <laughs> yeah, that's a valid point. I just wish that we could kind of move past the psychological impact that Newcastle had on John and into, into something completely different. Right. And, you know, it, it, I think a skilled storyteller would be able to still have the, the psychological ramifications of Newcastle running as an undercurrent while you explore new stories instead of just saying this is big and important it's not going away so it's still the focus of you know whatever yeah there's maybe a connection we should point out here too that John if you recall at this point in the comics he has just impregnated a woman that he doesn't really know 
instead of his girlfriend in order to fulfill this prophecy. And you see that as connected to King Constantine's... King Constantine sacrificing his sons? Speaking of which, if Constantine sacrificed both of his sons, how is John his descendant? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe he had a nephew. I guess he's a mean old bastard, so maybe he slept with a lot of people. <laughs> right. Yeah, it looks like he had sex with his slaves. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was a bit gratuitous. Indeed. All right. Any final thoughts? There is a lot of, like, historical, mythological, folkloric type stuff that is mentioned in this story that you can look into more deeply if you're interested. <laughs> uh, and it has a lot of density that way, if that's something that you wanted to take from it. But way more than... I mean, we've sort of only scratched the surface of it. Yeah. All right, we will catch up with Constantine in a few weeks in the pages of The Horrorist. But first, join us next week for Preacher 19 through 21, as Jesse rides to the rescue and Cassidy contends with too much gun. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website. That's vertiguys.blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes and show notes on every episode. All right, if you want to get in touch with us, and we would love it if you do, you can reach us at vertiguys at gmail.com or on Twitter at vertiguys. Also, we would be delighted if you would leave us positive iTunes reviews. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.